Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. Arc Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by Arc. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by Arc or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by Arc to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of Arc Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to FYI, ARC's weekly podcast on technology, innovation, and investment. This week, I had the great pleasure of talking to Jeffrey Ding. Jeff is one of the foremost authorities on artificial intelligence and its development in China. Jeff currently leads at the Center of Governance of AI at the University of Oxford at the Future of Humanities Institute, and he is working on a PhD in international relations. He puts out a fantastic weekly newsletter called China AI, where he and other collaborators translate original works written in Chinese for the English audience. And through this newsletter, he's been cited in various publications from the South China Morning Post to the MIT Technology Review to the Washington Post. In this podcast, you will hear us provide an overview of the state of artificial intelligence in China, some of the challenges of learning about Chinese AI developments from a Western perspective the threat of China-US AI escalation, as well as some of the longer-term ramifications about AI safety. I really enjoy talking to Jeff, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Jeff, you put out a newsletter called China AI, and recently you've celebrated your first anniversary. Congratulations. Thanks, James. It's a little bit different than celebrating like a dating anniversary or a birthday, but um, it's pretty meaningful as well. <laughs> yeah. For our listeners who, who's not aware, this is a letter newsletter that Jeff puts out uh, that, where he really kind of uncovers what is happening inside of China from an AI perspective, from a policy and uh, entrepreneurial perspective. And he often will translate original texts from Chinese to English and really bridge some of that language asymmetry that kind of exists in the world of AI research. In the recent one-year anniversary letter, you kind of provided a summary of everything you learned in the first year. The first thing that you mentioned was this concept of language asymmetry. I think that might be a good kind of point to start off. What do you mean by that? Yeah, it goes back to something Andrew Ng said about AI technical research, which is that the best Chinese researchers can read both English and Chinese. So they're able to get a sense of what's the best technical research happening in the Chinese language space and the English language space. Now, in that area, all the best technical AI papers probably are still published in English, but I applied that gap to the AI policy and AI governance research space, where in order to understand China's AI governance scene, actually most of the analysis is happening in Chinese. So Chinese analysts are able to read English and get a sense of what's happening in the West about AI developments. So articles about major developments such as the malicious use report or anything Professor Fei-Fei Li says about AI are translated within one or two days and analyzed and dissected and taken apart. Whereas the converse isn't true for Western understanding of the Chinese AI landscape. So that's essentially what the newsletter tries to do is it tries to correct for that asymmetry. 
Wonderful. Since Andrew raised this point, uh, has the situation improved in any way? Are Western researchers getting a better view of what's happening inside of China from both AI, I guess, research and applied? I think it is getting better. I think there's more international participation, AI technical conferences, such as NeurIPS, recently ICLR just happened. And so that is one channel through which research can be disseminated. If you have Chinese researchers from Tencent or Peking University or Tsinghua University going to these conferences, you get a sense of what they're doing in the English language space, but they may also share some of other work that they're doing. I think you're also seeing this change happen in China itself, where some of the top conferences are becoming uh, English only. So for example, the top Chinese natural language processing conference is English only, and it's hosted in China, and it's hosted by, I believe, the Chinese Computer Federation or a Chinese NLP body. But that's a chance for more engagement to happen between two sides. So it may just be that English will still be the dominant language for AI technical research. But I don't think that would be the case for analysis of for media analysis of AI uh, analysis of China's AI development itself. One perception is that China has great applied AI from its uh, large scale internet companies like BAT, but its research still lags the the West. Um, I think there's been some recent news reports that in research, China's publishing has now eclipsed kind of Western countries. Uh, how has how is that playing out? What is the quality of research coming out of China? Yeah, I think publication numbers are really hard to cite as indicators for what the research outputs are, how the research outputs are translating in terms of commercialization, usefulness, uh, quality, as you mentioned. Uh, I think the consensus is still that the top tier, maybe the top 10%, top 1% AI technical research is still happening in the US, UK. Uh, I think that you also have to specify the different domains that you're looking at. So it may be that in facial recognition, some of the top research is happening um, in China or in some fields of natural language processing, such as uh, specifically Chinese language, NLP. China might be more on the leading edge in terms of quality. But I do think that if you're looking at really groundbreaking articles, maybe the closest would have been the ResNets article from a while ago, uh, and that came out of Microsoft Research Asia's lab. So still a Western company, although three of those people who were co-authors on that paper then started their own Chinese AI startups. So that kind of shows you how this whole measuring publications, measuring citations, measuring who's doing the research is very difficult because the who is always in flux at times as well, just because of the transnational nature of AI research as well. I'm glad you mentioned uh, residual networks. Just about everyone these days who's trying to do high quality image classification is using some flavor of ResNets. And I think it's not super well appreciated that that came out of Microsoft Research Asia um, from Chinese researchers. That's That arguably is uh, China's greatest contribution to uh, AI research that's that's been widely disseminated so far. Yeah, I believe AlphaZero also used ResNets in in some of its models as well. That's right. That's right. That's a very interesting connection. Microsoft's investments in China, along with Chinese researchers, have yielded kind of one of the fundamental architectures behind, well, one of the largest AI breakthroughs and probably maybe even related to the StarCraft breakthrough. So that that's certainly worth uh, noting. In your summary, you also mentioned that there is this great perception of rivalry between the US and China as AI superpowers. A recent book came out with that angle. And uh, you think that's a little overplayed and sensational. I guess, what is the public perception 
off uh, this kind of rivalry? And what do you think the actual nature is? Yeah, I think it ultimately comes down to where you see zero sum purely relative gains competition between the US and China. I think there are a lot of areas across AI where the competition should be about absolute gains, healthy competition to help both sides improve and can be mutually beneficial. So I don't see why neural machine translation would be an area for zero sums competition or efforts to improve healthcare using better diagnostic tools empowered by AI. There may be certain sectors related to AI that are prone to natural monopolies, sorry, natural oligopolies. So maybe in autonomous vehicles, there will be only two or three winners or three or four winners. And that's where you see more of incentives for governments to be involved in sort of this arms race or this uh, battle to become the AI superpower. In terms of in terms of other areas that people talk about, such as AI applied in the military domain, for me, those are areas that I think the U.S. just has an enduring lead, where it's just very hard to catch up in terms of these integrated military systems that will now apply AI because these aircraft are packed with thousands and thousands of lines of software. They require like years of learning by doing, relationships with suppliers. So I do think in terms of the end use sort of discrete AI weapon that people maybe have in their minds when they think about AI, there's not really much of a competition. Hmm, that's interesting. I haven't spent much time looking at kind of the military applications of AI. Obviously, it's a controversial area. Um, I would imagine China would be very interested in this since they're looking for asymmetric weapon platforms in dealing with uh, with the West. What has their I guess, general development uh, direction being what kind of systems do they wish to develop? And given the, I presume, enormous investment from the government and reasonably strong researchers, why would they be behind or, or structurally uh, be, at, be at a disadvantage? I do think there is room for them to employ AI for asymmetric means in terms of things like what I mean by the the U.S.'s qualitative advantage in terms of the, I guess, the most advanced weapon systems. So take the F-35 stealth fighter. There's a couple of academic articles that have come out about how China has not been able to replicate that sort of end-use system. Or uh, even drones, right? The U.S. has had the combat experience to test out rudimentary drone systems and then also been able to deploy. Uh, drones require infrastructure to support them, like bases throughout the world, and requires a lot of like organizational reforms. And those are areas where the U.S. has the lead. And it's hard to catch up in those areas. I do think that like uh, conceptually, yes, there are some asymmetric possibilities China could explore. I'm not an expert in this area either, but potentially like guided cruise missiles might provide an asymmetric advantage against, say, U.S. aircraft carriers. Or a similar story could be told with unmanned underwater vehicles. Those are areas that China is definitely looking into, as well as uh, decentralized drone swarms, centralized drone swarms. On the U.S.-China rivalry, one area that's come up, and especially in the context of the trade wars, is semiconductors, whether it's AI chips, memory, or displays. And recently, one of your newsletters covered kind of the an insider's view of how a Chinese, uh, how the Chinese semiconductor industry is developing, and the challenges it faces in catching up with the U.S. and really being independent of Western suppliers. Could you give us an overview of of some of the core ideas there? Yeah. So this translation came from this 
guy named Saidong, and I don't really know much about him, but he has a pretty prominent internet blog. He's an alumni of Peking University and someone who has worked in the chip industry for many years and seems to have a good insider's view, as you said, overall lay of the land. What he does is he takes a very nationalistic, techno-nationalistic stance towards how basically China needs to develop independent, self-sufficient chip industry. And what he does is he says the issue is that China currently imports 200 billion US dollars worth of chips from South Korea and Taiwan. And obviously, a lot of the profits of those chips also goes back to the US firms that are designing them. And he says that's an issue because these places are geopolitically hostile. Um, so it's the threat of being potentially cut off, as was materialized in the ZTE case, although that was over Iran sanctions. Yes. Yeah, so the sort of the positive example he gives is, should we follow the layout of what has happened with the display panel and of the electronics industrial chain? And points to companies like BOE, where the Chinese panel industry has made vast advances. And then asks, can we do this in the chip field as well? Turns out it's a little bit harder in the chip field. China is still reliant on a lot of foreign funded enterprises. And there's still a big gap. So the example that he gives is SMIC, which is the largest and most advanced chip foundry in China, has annual revenue of only one-tenth of TSMC. And there's a technology gap of five to six years between the two companies. And he proceeds to go through and lay out what are the other challenges and the opportunity that AI provides. Because chips that can power customized AI algorithms may represent a big change in the field and let newcomers come in. And those are like opportunities for China to potentially catch up. Yeah, I thought it was a really good point. No one ever actually beat Intel and in x86 processors. Uh, it kind of took an industry shift to mobile and ARM uh, for there to have been a kind of resurgence of new players. And if we believe that microprocessors are evolving to bias greater workload toward neural nets, then AI has an opening. I guess we've already seen some progress there. Domestically, China has Cambricon and Horizon Robotics. Both uh, have products and raised a good amount of money. And uh, they're able to serve domestic Chinese companies like Huawei quite successfully. On the semiconductor manufacturing front, it, it seems like my impression was that, that maybe the gap wasn't so large given the foreign investments from companies like Intel and TSMC. I think they have 16 nanometer fabs already in China. But I think the newsletter points out these are relatively low volume fabs. Yeah. So this is where it gets really tricky, where these are details that I can't really confirm. And he makes the claim that TSMC's investments, which makes sense, TS TSMC has strategically done as much as they can to please the Chinese side without disclosing their core technology and still stay ahead. So that's why he makes such an argument against trusting foreign invested enterprises. At the same time, these hybrid firms for invested enterprises are, yeah, like you said, building a lot of plants, helping train talent and producing a lot of benefits for China as well. So it's just it's not just a matter of the second you can attract a kind of first tier Western fab, you can just uh, take their best ideas and, and bring yourself up to the latest fab node. It's not that simple. Yeah, it looks like it's not that simple. Or basically, you look at it from the incentive of the companies themselves, too, right? There's a Microsoft Research is not doing setting up Microsoft Research Asia out of the goodness of its heart. It's thinking that it can snipe a lot of the great Chinese talent and, you know, build really strong products like Xiao Ice, which is now one of the best natural language processing chatbots. So it's a game that 
is being played between the MNCs and then local Chinese cities and provinces and the Chinese government who is trying to capture some of this core technology. Let's tackle one of the uh, other huge narratives that people love to harp upon, which is the, that AI is all about data and China has a natural data advantage. I think you've written about this in, in various newsletters and one that kind of deals about uh, deals with how Tencent, how its various products you know, work through data. Could you give us an overview of maybe through that example, how Chinese companies do they have this advantage with data? Is it as big of a deal as it's made out to be in, uh, in Western articles? Yes. Yeah, so certainly there are advantages for China in terms of data and how it spurs AI development. So there's a lot of US-China collaborations in healthcare because there are Chinese hospitals at the level of scale and lesser regulations where you can get a lot of data on patients. Whereas if you were doing that same research in the US, you would have to collate data from five different hospitals and deal with five different sets of regulations. So there are data advantages in that respect. In other areas, such as self-driving cars, I don't really see why China uniquely has a data advantage just because there's more people on mobile phones, which is often a metric that is used. And it's one I actually use in my report because I was drawing from other people. So that just shows how, once again, you have to decompose AI from this broad concept into its subcomponents and specify sort of the specific algorithm techniques and also the domain level of the technology. I think that oftentimes what's pointed to as an example of China's data advantage is WeChat as this super app. So that's why one of the translations looked at what Li Guofei, who's known as an investment elder in the Chinese community, he talks to a lot of Tencent insiders and basically makes the argument that Tencent is not taking advantage of their data streams, that even WeChat's ad department doesn't get to see the personalized profiles and doesn't get to see the data from other departments to serve ads to WeChat users. So each of these departments treat data as their own property right. Um, is a term that's used. Yeah, very siloed, no central data sharing. And it's not that Tencent is being stupid. It's that I think that their leaders, some of their leaders do attach a lot of importance to the personal privacy of their users. And I mean that in the sense of personal privacy from company abuses. Obviously, WeChat is not private from the government surveillance apparatus, but they do want sort of your activities on WeChat to feel safe in terms of being leaked or being lost for financial security. Huh, that's very surprising. I, I thought it would just, uh, my my null hypothesis was that it was just uh, classic you know, company organizational issues. One department is not talking to another, but you're saying it's actually intentional and they're afraid of companies, their own employees, perhaps not being thoughtful about how this is surfaced. These are just things that people have said and legal affair doesn't make a doesn't make a determination as to why this is happening. But some people have said that, told me that I think the person behind WeChat, Allen of Tencent, he actually has a, you know, Tencent is a product company. It's very similar to Apple in that sense, in terms of this orientation toward making the consumer happy, make the consumer feel safe. When I look at the kind of AI landscape for uh, startups, it seems like the US has produced, or the West in general has produced very few um, notable successes, whereas China has produced many unicorns AI uh, for for AI companies, and this I'm still puzzling with. I think one pair of uh, one very kind of direct example is the fate of Clarify in in New York uh, versus say Megvi. How do you how do you pronounce? 
Yeah, Meg V Face Plus Meg Plus. Meg V Plus Face Plus Plus. Yeah. So comparing Clarify, which is one of the original image recognition companies founded by Matt Zeiler, he won ImageNet in one year, has been struggling to kind of turn the company into a into a find a revenue stream. I think recently they signed up some work with the DoD, but even then they're struggling to really find product market fit. Whereas companies like MegV and Face Plus Plus in China and SenseTime, these are all companies raising huge amounts of money. They're generating good revenue and they seem to be doing very well. How would you view kind of these dis- disparate outcomes for what appears to be very similar companies? Yeah, I don't know much about Clarify. So I think like the big startups, obviously, that you mentioned are in the facial recognition space. So that leads me to look at what are the differences in the systems? So I think there's more of a willingness to deploy facial recognition systems in public security applications. So I think the government in that sense may have almost acted as a sort of anchor consumer of sorts that allowed these companies to get off the ground and then also was willing to share data, multiple ministries of public security, provincial level ministries of public security, and then the central government ministry of public security work with these facial recognition startups to share data, allow them access to the data to train their algorithms. And then it's not just about sort of being able to run your, train your algorithms on the data set. If you get access to it, you can also then like correct your algorithms based on how it tests on the data set itself. So that's a pretty high level of access that they're willing to give. At the same time, it's hard to say because at least according to one courts article that interviewed SenseTime CEO, he says that the majority of their revenues and their contracts actually come from non-government sources. So they found a way to generate revenue in terms of getting facial recognition to land in maybe like smart gate access control applications or you know financial security, security for private firms, those types of applications. Obviously, to unlock your phone and different apps at the consumer end as well. Some people have made the argument that there's just uh, because there's such a demand for sort of consumer sort of like face enhancement type of apps in China. There's different consumer markets. That's why facial recognition has taken off more. It's probably a combination of all those different factors. And that's just for facial recognition. I, I think your proposition is a good one, but I don't know if it holds outside of facial recognition. And you also have to consider, we might overemphasize unicorns and the bigger issue, maybe how it diffuses through the big tech companies and through the system as a whole. So maybe in the US, the big tech giants just take over the actual facial recognition algorithms. And they're the ones that are the facial recognition startups of sorts. It's just been absorbed into their systems because they had so much of the AI talent in the first place. Whereas in China, there was more room for these startups to grow. Just throwing out random theories sure, here, but sure. it's, it's a good thing that we should kind of trace, someone should track down that reason um, at some point. Yeah, even I guess outside of facial recognition, if you think about voice in China, there's iFly Tech. I think uh, NetEase does some very good work there. But in the US, we have the OG, which is Nuance. It's like pre deep learning, well, not pre deep learning, but pre the kind of modern wave of deep learning. But there are not really uh, many examples of successful AI startups that has stayed independent. Um, there are tons of AI startups. They all get absorbed into the uh, the Fang group, more or less. Whereas China, it seems like maybe due to the size of the market, due to the willingness of consumers to try novel things, facial filters and whatnot, that they're able to somehow have a more interesting independent life. Yeah, it may also just be because we're talking about so few big tech companies here. 
yeah, in the U.S. and maybe that the big tech companies have just been able to absorb these startups, even the Google DeepMind sort of thing. Like DeepMind is like could potentially be considered like the Bell Labs of our time, and it's absorbed under Google. And in China, a good example is Face Plus Plus and Alibaba's relationship. Alibaba relied on Face Plus Plus for all of its facial recognition up until I think just a year ago, or now Alibaba is trying to develop its own facial recognition platform. So Alipay can have a uh, can just rely on internal facial recognition. So you might see some of these Chinese giants catch up and try to absorb the the startups functions. That's a good point. It's kind of it also reflects the relationship between startups and incumbents in in China. In the West, the startups tend to be acquired, and in China, it seems like direct investment is a is a very popular mechanism to share ideas and to gain access. Right, and there's a little differentiation there too. So Alibaba likes to take controlling shares when they do the direct investment, whereas Tencent will kind of pepper small investments in different places sometimes.、Hmm, that's a great point. One interesting、uh, newsletter you put out recently was kind of on the rise of data labelers as a profession or as a phenomenon. For those、uh, kind of not in the weeds of deep learning, most of、uh, what we call AI today requires data to be labeled,、uh, often by hand. The original ImageNet breakthrough was、uh, labeled by Princeton students for ten dollars an hour, and that is something that has to be done for autonomous driving data, for voice, for all kinds of data. And、uh, you profiled some of the, I guess, stories in Chinese cities of how that's become a profession. Uh, how is that turning out? Yeah, so it's become like its own mini industry of sorts. It started in 2007 when, as you mentioned, Fei Fei Li, who was an assistant professor at Princeton at the time, she pays Princeton undergraduates ten dollars an hour to do the annotations for ImageNet. And now you have cities like third tier, fourth tier cities across. China sometimes in rural areas where there are data annotation companies. The one that is profiled in this translation is called、uh, Qian Qianji Shuju, and Ma Mengli is a worker there. And the GQ China long-form piece goes through and looks at a day in her life where she is labeling ladders and label putting labels on whether a ladder is movable or not. So a ladder on a bunk bed would be. Labeled unmovable, whereas a ladder, freeform ladder, standing on the side of a house would be movable. And they don't know anything about what it's eventually being used for. Eventually, I believe a lot of this stuff they find out was used to win a competition for Face Plus Plus. I think actually, like a computer vision competition. So they celebrate that, but you know, it doesn't really mean anything to them. It's just their job, and it really touches on sort of. The human aspect of these annotation services—you go through and see their lives. Like they go visit a noodle restaurant made famous by an internet streamer. There's like you get a kind of behind the scenes and like the kind of the dark market or the kind of the the darker corners of China's investment habits. So sometimes like. They swap stories about how people would give away、uh, free counterfeit Tide laundry detergent to get people to sign up on their finance apps because these finance apps were like trying to raise money, so they need a lot of users to sign up. And then this story, there's like how they go to rural areas and get people to get their picture taken to get more data, and they trade it for like、uh, soybean oil or something. So you get you get a sense of what happens outside of Beijing and Shanghai and Guangzhou and Shenzhen, and what happens in like Henan, Shandong, Hebei, and other areas. The Princeton students were getting paid ten dollars an hour. How、uh, how much were these、uh, folks getting paid to label data? 
I'm not sure, actually. I think the main source of payment that I remember is the soybean oil for, <laughs> I think, like 20 minutes of your time getting your picture taken from different angles. One thing that kind of uh, is a popular narrative is that AI can thrive in China because consumers there don't care about privacy and they're willing to have their, they're willing to just have facial recognition be the default and use that for payments. They're not so fussy, if you will, about data and privacy protection. Is that true? And what um, what is the actual Chinese consumer's perspective on privacy right now? Yeah, so I think it's a, it's a tough question. Uh, obviously, Chinese people care about privacy. I think the difference is about the degree to which they care about privacy versus other trade-offs and also what privacy means. So there's some good articles out there that say Chinese users are more willing to trade off privacy. That doesn't mean they don't care about it at all. So there have been more responses to some cases, for example, in the facial recognition did a translation where more and more financial payment apps are using facial recognition as a way to unlock access to Alipay or WeChat Pay. And recently there was a story that went pretty viral because it became a big human interest story where this guy got all of his money transferred out of his financial payment account because his roommate scanned his face when he was sleeping and his eyes were closed. So obviously that that's a case of privacy defined in the sense of it's an instrumental right. It's something that is key to protect you from financial losses, you know, keep you safe. Whereas if you define privacy more in terms of a civil liber liberty to be free from government surveillance per se, that might be something Chinese people care about, but they have no uh, less ability to express. So oftentimes, that's where you get a lot of gaps in terms of what people are talking about in terms of Chinese approaches to privacy is because you're talking about two different interpretations of what privacy means. We've seen Facebook kind of have various PR blowups due to uh, losing information or or certain data sharing agreements that are out of line with what the public expects. Have we seen similar kind of PR fiascos in China dealing with either Tencent or Alibaba, one of the other guys? Yeah, I think you've had one newsletter a while back looked at sort of 2018 and all the different data leakage incidents that happen on the in terms of cloud security. So Alibaba cloud had a large scale breakdown due to a just a routine operation bug, and it affected half of the country's internet. Tencent was also the target of major cyber attacks, one that like went after Tencent Cloud, and the other was a blackmail virus that infected WeChat Pay. So you've had these major data breaches. YTO Express, there's about like, there was 1 billion pieces of YTO Express, which is a very large Chinese delivery company that was like being sold for one Bitcoin on the dark web. So yeah, there have been sort of these big data breaches and I th you're seeing more of a reaction. You're seeing the personal information protection standard being promulgated. Ministries are working together to audit some of the major internet giant social apps. So I do think there is going to be more of a crackdown on the first version of privacy, privacy from company abuses. I guess Facebook in the West is the the pressure has been mounting to the degree that people are calling for it to be broken up. Is there any sentiment of that sort being applied to Chinese companies? So there was an interesting nugget. I think it was from the Li Guofei piece where um, Tencent had a war with Chihu 360, and it was over. Basically, they wouldn't give access to Chihu 360 on maybe like their browsers or some of their other platforms, and it really 
I think there was a name labeled to the war and like netizens argued on both sides. And yeah, that that was where people were expressing the sentiment that Tencent is way too powerful. So I think like Tencent captures about 50% of usage time total in terms of all Chinese users on apps on a monthly basis across all their platforms, which includes WeChat and gaming and everything. So even more ascendant than say Facebook in the US, one could argue. Yeah. So people have reacted against that monopoly power. And it was that war with Chihu that incited some of it to the point where a Tencent CEO, Pony Ma, had to like go on listening tours throughout the country and like, you know, hold forums and discuss concerns with Tencent's monopoly power, what Tencent can do better to serve users. Um, So there is definitely that perception. In the United States, there's been at least precedent of large companies being broken up and, and of course, the government trying to break companies up. Is there such precedent in China historically? I'm not sure about that one. Places that come to mind will be telecommunications. I don't know if there used to be one company and now there are three, but that's a good question. Recently, you wrote an article for a MIT Tech Review on kind of the state of China's autonomous cars players and I guess the battle versus Baidu. Uh, how is that shaping out? I think there is a perception that Baidu has put in a lot of effort into this area. Is the natural comparison to kind of Waymo in the US? And who do you think has a, among the startups, has a reasonable lead in the area? Yeah, so that's really funny because I wrote that, I reported that story in October of last fall. And the hook for that story was visiting roadstar.ai, which is Really, I think the mode the mode of these Chinese self driving car startups is really interesting because they start out with dual headquarters. So they have a headquarters in Cupertino or in San Francisco, and then they have a headquarters in Shenzhen or Guangzhou. And a lot of them like get the talent from the Silicon Valley side, and then they do test in California and they want to try to compete in the U.S. market. But then they also do a lot of testing in China. And Roadstar was planning on moving a lot of their team back to China. So I, I thought they had a pretty solid understanding the space and they had talent from Tesla, Baidu, way more. So you have, they had people who could understand what all three companies were trying to do in the space. But actually recently there's been news in Chinese media about how like their CEO or CTO got kicked out and like investors are pulling out funds. So it's a good sense of how things just move a lot of how things are move fast in the space. So I would say the most promising Startups would actually be the other ones mentioned in the article. So Pony.ai comes to mind. They have a district in Nansha, a Nansha district in Guangzhou area where they do road testing in China. And Baidu also is a competitor, of course, with their Apollo platform. I think like Apollo, this didn't make it into the piece, but I think there's a lot of hype around Apollo. But there's a lot of fundamental issues as well, which is if you're taking the Android model, just the level of security that's required for all the pieces to fit together in an autonomous vehicles is so much higher than for phones. So you really have to have tight strategic alliances if you want people playing at different levels of the stack there. And then I think when I was talking to the Roadstar CTO, he mentioned that the closest analog to self-driving cars isn't actually the Android model of uh, mobile operating systems, but rather it's consumer drones. And he pointed to DJI as taking out their open source competitors. I forget what the company was, but DJI just did their own stack. So his argument was that you need to do you need to fully autonomize your stack, or at least the key technology portions of the stack. So. Yeah, it's an interesting space, though. Yeah, the key question will be whether Waymo will be able to compete in China or not. 
they try to set up a subsidiary in Shanghai. And I think they're obviously you want to compete in either the largest or the second largest autonomous driving market in the world. So that'll be the key thing to look out for. The DJI analogy is very interesting. I haven't thought of that before. Would that imply vertical integration of basically doing everything, owning the critical components yourself? Would that favor, I guess, companies that that are able to both operate cars and, and have their own hardware and software stacks? I think that's the argument he was making. I don't know who can actually do that in the autonomous space. I I don't. Maybe Waymo is trying to do that. I guess but Tesla. I don't think Waymo does their own lidar. Maybe they do, but I guess so far only Tesla has kind of gone down the hardcore vertical integration route. Yeah. So Tesla even does their own chips, which I think you're seeing some of the advantages pay off there. So the Roadstar CTO's critique of Tesla was you have to have LiDAR and that the camera approach is not going to be sufficient. So I think self-driving cars is a really nice area where you just see the complexity of AI and how it interacts with hardware, how it interacts with like vertical integration pressures, opportunities for startups, a lot of the hype and how like the timelines will play out. So yeah, that's why I enjoyed reporting the story. But it also made me realize I don't have a good, I'm not made out for the investing landscape. So do not take any of my company suggestions well, because the company I profiled is uh, potentially going defunct. Yeah, I'm sure it's not your fault. Does China's government have a perspective on autonomous driving policy or, or, or development that is distinguished from the West? So it appears there's been more of restriction on road test licensing. So in California, a lot of these Chinese startups got access to tests, so Roadstar, Pony, Jinshu.ai. Whereas in China, the vast, at least in Beijing, the vast majority of the licenses have been given out to Bai, given out to Baidu. And that may be just because that's where Baidu's power base is. So maybe there will be more opportunity for road testing in Shenzhen or Guangzhou. The other area is actually they've relaxed sort of restrictions on foreign investment into automobiles. I don't know if that's directed toward this autonomous driving space in particular, but it may be a nod to the fact that you're seeing a lot of like German car manufacturers and car companies enter into strategic alliances with Chinese companies working on autonomous vehicles. Um, so Daimler comes to mind as an example. Right. And Tesla getting its factory approved in Shanghai is, uh, was a kind of an unprecedented move. Overall, do you get the feeling that maybe Western companies have a better chance of having a business of this sort in China versus maybe the traditional history, which is Google quitting, Uber quitting, a lot of Western companies having a beachhead and then quitting? Yeah, the hard. So the two tricky parts come to mind. One is, will the Chinese government view this as a sort of the natural oligopoly, like a strategic industry, as I mentioned before, where you kind of need to subsidize a player to get in the game. The second is data and sort of critical information infrastructure. So there, I believe mapping is one of those areas that is designated as something that's viewed as critical information that has to be protected. So the degree to which that will affect the ability of international companies to compete. So it might be that you have to have all the mapping done by a Chinese partner, and then you'll be able to compete. So that those are the two things that would come to mind as bottlenecks. Okay. Maybe just to wrap up, we can kind of talk about some of your current work. Jeff, you're doing your doctorate at kind of the Future for Humanity Institute in Oxford. Uh, could you tell us a little about what you're focusing on and, and what exciting research areas you're looking into? Yeah. So right now for my research at the Center for the Governance of AI at FHI uh, here in Oxford, I spend bulk of my time doing these translations and just keeping up to date with what is actually happening in China with a 
special attention to any new policy announcements, uh, any shifts in terms of how they're viewing strategic competition in AI. We're also working on looking at within the AI ecosystem, what could potentially be strategic assets or areas where there would be incentives for countries to race for relative advantage. And that's some of the areas that I mentioned to you, like ones that could be like natural oligopolies. So you might need governments to step in to subsidize. There might be areas where private firms will underinvest because the spillovers are so great and so positive across a wide range of sectors that you might need the government to step in to correct the market. And then there might be areas in the supply chain where you have a lot of concentration of dependencies. So things like chips, where there's a risk of a supply cutoff. So we're looking at different strategic assets, different elements of the AI ecosystem that would fall into those buckets. And then for my default research, I look at scientific and technological power. So how countries measure up in terms of being science and technology powers, and then how the globalization of innovation is changing how we measure those power resources. So when you say you have the top 10 technology firms in the world, how, uh, is that really something that matters for national power if those companies are sourcing their technology abroad, building up talent bases abroad, and not contracting with your military? So those are the questions that I'm looking at. I see. Has those rankings been established? And uh, are there any surprises you think in those rankings? Yes. Yeah, so that's kind of the main question is how do you rank countries along science and technology power? And people have just used R&D investments, public R&D investments, people look at patents, citations. I think it really depends on what you're trying to measure. So if you're trying to measure scientific and technological power as a way to garner economic advantage, one argument is you look at advantages in some of the leading sectors. So the sectors that might be ripe for a lot of future growth, productivity enhancement. So that would lead you to things like AI, potentially biotechnology, and then the suite of information technologies. So yeah, that, those are kind of the questions that I'm trying to disentangle. I see. Do you kind of focus at all on superintelligence and policy relating to, to AI safety? Yeah, for sure. So keep an eye on what people in China, especially in the AI technical community, are saying in terms of AI safety, and then also the general public perception of AI safety. So, for example, in one of the newsletter issues, I feature who I think is the Nick Bostrom of China. And Nick Bostrom is uh, sort of our FHI center director who wrote the book Superintelligence. And the Nick Bostrom of China is a uh, professor, Zhao Tingyang, who is one of the leading contemporary Chinese philosophers. And he talks about the risks of superintelligence in pretty sophisticated original terms. And then also tracking some of the big name professors like Professor Zhou Zhihua of Nanjing University has spoken about out about the risks of strong AI as well and has said it's a technology that should not be touched. Could you, um, I think maybe some of our readers have a general sense of where Nick Bostrom stands and, and raising being one of the first people to raise the dangers of superintelligence. What has been the Chinese perspective being? What is uh, their kind of take on the same issue? I think the mainstream take has been very similar to what the mainstream take in the West has been, which is that it's too far off of an issue for us to really focus too much attention on now. But the distinction is, I think a lot of the top AI researchers in the West have bought into the argument that even if it's far off, uh, it's really worth it to think about preventative things we should be doing now, because we may only get one shot controlling a superintelligence. So that's one of the main things that we're worried about at FHI. And 
a lot of things that will happen in the near term will help us with sort of this bigger existential threat. So building cooperation between the US and China on AI might be able to resist, resist some of the incentives for racing to AGI that would lead to safety shortcuts. So a lot of the stuff that we're trying to do in the near term to build better understanding for both sides, better understanding and less hype about China's AI development could potentially also mitigate the risks of AGI and superintelligence. That's great. When the nuclear arms race was on, there, there were uh, kind of communication and, and establishing dialogue and, and certain treaties were kind of cru- crucial to making sure that outcome you know, even though it was very close, it was still positive. Has there been any, I guess, established forums, channels, organizations that's coordinating between the United States, China, and I guess who would be other maybe third or fourth ranked countries here? Yeah, for sure. I think Europe definitely has a big role to play. Other countries like Canada, Israel, and it's a problem that will affect all of humanity. So there should be more voices in the room than just the US-China dichotomy. Uh, One organization is called the Partnership on AI, and Baidu recently joined as the first member from China. I think a lot of these conversations will also happen in private between technical researchers on both sides meeting up at conferences. And yeah, I do think having these channels of communications are open, which is why it's really important actually to ensure that we we don't uh, chill cross-country collaborations between U.S. AI researchers and Chinese AI researchers. So that helps maintain that bridge. Jeff, it's been so great talking to you today. For our listeners who want to read more about your work, uh, where can they find your work? Yeah, just it's the China AI newsletter with one A and if you just search that on Google, followed by Substack, which is the platform where I host it on, um, you'll probably be able to find it. And yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at JJDing99. Awesome. Jeff, it's been a very illuminating conversation. We hope to have you back on the podcast and uh, best of luck for your newsletter. Awesome. I enjoy reading all your stuff. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoyed this episode of FYI. Give us a rating on iTunes or subscribe to us and follow us on Twitter. We'll catch you next week. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.